This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Hello and welcome back. I'm Ken Smith, professor here at the Wharton School, and you're listening to your Money Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. For the rest of the show, you know the routine. I'll have a couple of advisors with me taking your calls about your own financial situation. So if you want to know how to invest your money, save for retirement, kids' college, paying down debts, do you really need that life insurance policy someone's trying to sell you? Really, anything about your money. Uh, if you got a question, love to answer it here live on Tuesday. So grab the phone, give me a call here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. With me back on the show, in fact, in the studio this time is Patrick uh, Cote, who is the founder um, partner of Asset Grade in Boston, uh, and Massachusetts, and has had a lot of industry experience. Before that, yeah, before launching Asset Grade in 2013, and is a certified financial planner, like all other planners on the show, fee only. And uh, unlike many advisors on the show, very distinguished having an MBA from the Wharton School. Welcome back to the show, Patrick. Thanks, Kent. Glad to be back. And if you have a question for Patrick and myself, again, love to answer a question here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And uh, Patrick, just tell us a little bit about your firm. If you have a typical client, what's he or she like? Sure. So, uh, Asagrade is a fee-only RIA firm, as uh, as you know, for coming on the show. And we are based in three different locations. So, we have uh, offices in Boston, Georgia, and Illinois. And we focus on Henry's, high earners, not rich yet. So that lets us focus on people who are still working, still have a chance to build up their assets and help them build the uh, the assets in a tax-efficient way along the, uh, before retirement. Yeah. And it's, it's so you get a client, uh, a new client, and um, so what, give me an impression. What does their kind of first year look like? So first year is typically a cleanup. You know, we've had people call us uh, doing the, the California closets thing yeah. where they'll come in with, a you know, a dozen different accounts. They might have had at brokerage firms and old 401ks. So we help them get alignment, uh, get the accounts cleaned up, get put into the right kind of vehicles for them, hopefully consolidated down to a few more manageable accounts mm-hmm. and spend time with them really understanding their goals getting the investments aligned with those goals, and then putting a plan in place to help help them fund it and do that in a tax-efficient way. Yeah, yeah. And again, speak, speaking with Pat, uh, Patrick Cote, who's the founding uh, partner of Asset Grade uh, in studio today, I'd love to answer a question. If you have a question about your own personal finances, uh, anything related to, you know, maybe uh, grandma just left you a bunch of money wanting to know what to do with her, you're trying to figure out should you uh, maybe pay down debts faster or invest more in the market. Anything related to your finances, I'd love to answer your question here today, uh, live on Tuesday. So give me a call here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four. Nine four two seven eight six six. Um, so you, you talk about Henry's high earners, not yet rich. Uh, define more precisely what that is. What would be kind of like the minimum kind of income that you would be thinking about? What type of assets and so forth? So we get asked that question a lot. And they're, they're not hard and fast numbers necessarily. So it's a state of mind, right? No, well, it goes beyond that. <laughs> so that, that, uh, the, uh, that's a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, in a place, so, you know, I'm based in Boston. And so, you know, for income, 
for any of the locations, frankly, it's really when people are making enough money that they can they can actually start to save in addition to you know what they're what they're paying for their expenses. Yeah. So typically in the Boston area, you know, for a household, it might be two hundred fifty thousand for a household income. Mm-hmm. Below that, it's hard to to save a lot of money and, and live a middle class lifestyle. So, but once you start to get beyond that amount, then you have the opportunity to save. It doesn't mean people will, but it means they they can save. Yeah. In a place places like New York or San Francisco, it's more expensive. So you might, you know, we hear from folks who live in New York, uh, you know, married with a couple of kids. And, you know, if their kids are in private school, they need mm-hmm. like 500000 a year to cover all those costs without living a crazy, fancy lifestyle. Yeah, so, yeah. so that's kind of that, that minimum for the income. On the wealth side, for being rich, it's kind of the same idea where, you know, again, it depends where you live, depends how much in the way of expenses you need to cover. If you're in a low-cost, small town, uh, you know, in an area that's uh, that doesn't have all of those crazy expenses, you know, $5 million would be, you know, you could live very, very nice on $5 million, and that would mm-hmm. be uh, easily considered rich. If you're in one of those very expensive towns, that might not, I mean, you can be considered well-off, but that might not be considered rich because you're not living, you know, particularly like a first-class lifestyle necessarily in yeah, some of those areas yeah. with that. So it's going to vary from place to place. Sure, yeah. It's certainly Amazon's announcement today of... One of its headquarters going to New York City is certainly going to push up property prices even more, certainly in the Queens uh, area. And then, of course, uh, Northern Virginia being its other location. I think, uh, you know, those places already have pretty high property values. And, um, you know, for 250000 bucks, maybe you get a you know, one-bedroom apartment or, or something <laughs> like that. If you're lucky. If you're lucky, that's right. And again, speaking with Patrick Cote, founding partner of Asset Grade. Seems like he's in a good mood. It's probably something to do with those Red Sox. <laughs> and uh, get from Boston, Massachusetts, in studio this time. I'd uh, love to answer a question. Anything related to your money, that's the show's name, live on Tuesdays. So get, grab the phone. Give me a call here at one eight four four wharton that's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So let me go to Don calling from North Carolina. How can I help you, Don? Hello. Uh, I'll give you a little background. I'm seventy three and retired on Social Security. My wife is 62, 62 and employed. Uh, household income is one hundred and forty thousand. Mm. And is that yeah. hundred forty thousand? Your wife's income does that include your social security. Includes my social security. It varies. Sometimes she has stocks and awards and other things, but yeah, I'm used to. And sometimes people include their 000. required minimum distributions in their household income. Are you requ- are you including that as well? I'm sorry, you asked me again. Uh, some I assume you're you have some saving for retirement. You have some required minimum distributions. Um, do you? We're not we're not to do that because of uh, health problems years ago for me. Okay. Okay. We got everything. We have everything in her name. Okay. All right. Good. So how can we help you, Don? I've got stuff sitting around and money sitting around low uh, interest savings accounts or checking accounts or bank ordinary bank CD. Sure. And uh, we we kind of watched getting in the market, but we've been a little hesitant. Well, we did own a, a stock that we got through uh, awards mm-hmm. from her employer, and uh, okay, and and we got out of all of it that we had because they had dates that you had to get out. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So we have a four hundred one k at five hundred fifteen thousand. Uh huh. 
stable value is uh, 52% of it. Uh, common stock funds to 94,000. The target refund, retirement fund 2020, is 164,000. Okay. Contributions are 13 to 15,000 a year right. with a 50% match added on. Okay. Uh, have 403B called it's called a flexible retirement annuity uh, that Sloan's had. My wife's had since 1991. It's uh, 245,000. Okay. It's got a lock interest rate at 4%. All right. Um, another smaller 401k, it's 30,000. Okay. So rough, roughly speaking, if we add it all up, maybe 750,000-ish. Um, is, is that right, your total savings for retirement? We, we have seven. We have seven ninety and. Uh, All right, I tell you what, Don. It's we don't have to go through every account. Just roughly speaking, if you add it all up, how much you have you saved up? Uh, how, how much you have in savings? What we have in these with with this stuff and other things, million three. Okay, one point three. About a, million, about a million four. All right, all right, all right. And do you, and so it sounds like your wife is still working. Um, does she plan to work for a while? Yes. Okay. Uh, do you know when she'll kind of retire? Uh, we know if it's going to be 66 Okay. or 70. All right. All right. So it sounds like uh, she's going to have a good kind of cash flow of income uh, for a while. All right. So uh, what about debts, Don? Do you, do you have any kind of, I assume you probably paid off your house and everything else, or just want to make sure about that? So uh, we have a house that uh, we can, because of the time and health problems and in the, in the uh, great boondoggle on uh, securitized mortgages, that uh-huh. we got a million two in is probably worth eight fifty, and we owe three forty on it. Oh, okay. So you have some debts. Uh, it sounds like three hundred forty thousand um, dollars, and in mortgage debt. Do you know the interest rate on that? Four point eight. Four point eight. Is that? I assume that's fixed, or is that variable? Fixed. Fixed. Okay. Four point eight percent. Okay. So it sounds like your question is about you got some money sitting in a savings account, bank accounts, things like that. Um, I forgot to ask. Is that your only debt? Is that your? It's only debt. Okay. And is there any other type of pension plan, like um, some some traditional pension plan that kind of pays a monthly sum outside of this $1.4 million that, uh, that either your wife or yourself uh, is expecting? Yeah. It, it's her. And uh, Do you have a sense of how big that is? It's, it's over a couple hundred thousand. It's uh, If you take it, take it in lump and then put she plans to take in payments. Okay, that's usually the right strategy. Was she a teacher or is she a teacher? No. Okay, all right. So this is a private pension plan, so uh, yes. is, is what I'm assuming. Okay, so it yeah. sounds like, and by the I'm way, almost. Okay, so almost always you're better off. This is not strictly true, but typically you're better off taking that out as kind of annuity payments. It does depend on some details, but usually the lump sum is calculated using a very high interest rate 
to do an equivalent adjustment, sometimes like 5%, 6%, which on a risk-free basis is very high. Um, but you certainly you could always go to my website, kentonmoney.com. There's a guy in there named Scott Witt who's uh, an actuary who does these calculations to kind of figure this out. But in any case, um, so your question really is that you have money sitting in a bank account and you're wondering what to do with it. Is that right? Yeah, we have seven one, one three one four and eight hundreds and and four ones and four threes. So the difference is sitting around in uh, some money market accounts uh, and uh, CDs and one hundred fifty six thousand checking. Okay, and, so it sounds like almost six hundred thousand bucks is sitting in pretty almost cash money market uh, that that type of stuff, and it's unlikely you know you have. You know, big emergency accounts, things like that, that you're going to have to worry about. Maybe some out of pocket medical for things like that. Um, but uh, so it's really a question that it sounds like what you should be doing with that money sitting in, you know, cash like products. So, um, uh, Patrick, I mean, it has, you know, it looks like they're overall pretty well saving up for retirement. His wife's going to continue to work for. A while. It is true that it, 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 it sounds like she's not doing her maximum 401k contribution per year. Sometimes people think about you know the maximum being between the employer and employee, not realizing that it's really about their own contribution that they can make. Uh, but still, putting that aside, this money that's sitting in a checking account. Um, you know, at the same time, they have this loan out there for 4.8 percent kind of risk-free, you know, return on that. Uh, your thoughts on what they should be doing? Yeah, so, uh, and one quick question before diving into that. So, Don, what are your expenses each month? Do you have a rough sense of those? Just ballpark. Um, yeah, are we talking about like 3000 bucks a month or 5000 bucks a month or? Five. Five. Okay. 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 Okay, great. Well, and, and yeah, to Kent's point, you, you, you guys are in good shape. And so I think it's really just thinking about the opportunities. And there are a couple that kind of jump out. So it's really different options for you. And one is, uh, as Kent was saying, you've got the mortgage at 4.8%. And then you've got uh, more than that's 340000 that you still owe on it. And then you've got quite a bit sitting in cash or near cash type investments, which is presumably getting a pretty low interest rate. I'm guessing it's 1% or, or, or under 2 And so that's a bit of a disconnect there. So you could one option could be to, to prepay that mortgage mm-hmm. and, and take advantage of that differential. So, you know, you still get the – you may or may not be getting that tax break anymore for that mortgage interest deduction. And so depending on whether you're itemizing your deductions anyways yeah. – so that you may be paying four percent, four point eight percent after tax yeah. on, uh, nowadays, and so you're probably not going to get that on a risk free basis. So that's right. kind of a nice one to to think about if you wanted to go that route. So that would be dipping into that. You know, you mentioned you have that five hundred k in money markets and the one fifty six in the checking. Dipping into that to pay to pay yeah. for the mortgage would be one path you could consider. Yeah, and, and I, that's where I'd be doing. Uh, going as well with this, Don. In particular, um, you know, you're holding a fair amount of low risk assets in almost 600,000 what we call cash like products, whether it's CDs, money markets, and so forth. On top of that, you have this pension that your wife will 
get presumably if, uh, I'm encouraged that she's not going to take the lump sum. She's going to take the monthly payments. Likely it's structured in a way that will keep paying until she passes away. Uh, it's not going to index for inflation. That's a you know a con of it, but still um, there's a good chance that um, between that pension and the rest of the assets there, you're going to be in pretty good, sh- and sh- in particular she will also be in good shape. Both eleven years younger, uh, a female instead of a male. My wife's twelve years younger. She tells me, explains to me how her life expectancy is at least you know <laughs> sixteen years more than that. And then she looks at my diet and she you know cranks it up to twenty some years. But in any case, um, it's really about protecting for your your spouse in that sense. And it sounds like, especially given that she's going to continue to work, you guys are really in good shape. So right now, it's really about arbitraging these different returns. And what I would be really be doing is I, I would actually be comfortable just paying off that mortgage. So you could take um, that $340,000. And even if you're getting some tax benefit of it, as you know, uh, Patrick points out, there's a good chance you're not under the new tax law. You might be just doing the standard de- deduction. But even if you're getting some tax benefit, um, the after-tax return is still in the fours for that. And getting a 4% risk-free return, um, there's just nothing like it. So um, I would actually, uh, if you still want to hold, um, be wiser about your funds, but it sounds like you may be fairly risk-averse and not wanting to be taking a lot of risk, uh, I would actually take um, a lot of that $600,000. I'd actually be comfortable if you just paid off that $340,000 in mortgage. You know, an argument could be made that maybe you do half of it or something like that. But I I would actually, uh, given that you're comfortable kind of elsewhere, um, I don't think see a reason why you need to be holding on uh, to all that cash. I would just actually pay off the mortgage. Is that helpful, Don? Yes. We're going to sell this house. We're in North Carolina. We're going to go on here. All right. Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much, Don. Really appreciate it. Th- thanks for calling. Again, speaking with Patrick Cote, who is the founding partner of Asset Grade in Boston, Massachusetts. And rem- remember, we're live on Tuesday. So love to answer a question here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And love to answer anything really related to your money. And again, my producer Michelle standing by ready to line up your calls here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So, uh, Patrick, you mentioned earlier you, you, you focus a lot. Uh, probably not exclusively, but a lot of your target market is on these Henry's high uh, earners, not yet rich. Um, so what are some of the unique challenges that Henry's are, are facing? Well, one of the things, and, and you know, I was here at on campus earlier today talking to the current MBA students, and you know, I think it was a common theme with them as well. You know, for I think for a lot of Henry's, they're embarrassed about their, their financial situation. Mm-hmm. You know, they feel, you know, they're, they're often uh, smart, well-educated folks, and they feel that they should be on top of this stuff and should be doing everything perfectly. And I tell you, it's very, very rare. I'm sure you've seen that, too. It's very rare when every, everyone does everything perfectly. Uh, you know, there are so many things involved in, in uh, taking care of your finances. And so it's, 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 you know, people should not beat themselves up for that and just uh, get out in front of it, just deal with it. Um, you know, there are a lot of things people should be doing if they haven't. You know, make sure that they've got a plan in place uh, and then just stick with it and then stay on top of it. Don't don't neglect it over yeah. time. 
Yeah, and it's it, it, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is even a place here, like at Wharton, where we teach a lot of finance, but it's usually more on the corporate side, the business side, not so much on the personal side. It's it, it's really hard to get all everything right, and it's, it's a lot of complexity. Uh, and there's also a lot of emotional issues involved in where it's really easy to look out and look at business and not look inward at our own kind of circumstances. Um, and so, again, speaking with Patrick Cote, founding partner of Asset Grade, Boston, Massachusetts. Love to answer your questions here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So today, presumably, you know, you, you met with. Henry's or soon to be Henry's, and uh, we'll come back to kind of student debts and things like that in a little bit. But you know, what are some of the big questions? I'm curious of what you got today. Well, one of the biggest was, and I think this is relevant for for many callers too, is if people have a low income year, there are all sorts of things that they could be doing, and so you know, and this applies to their first year or second year students yeah. here. Their income is probably, especially if you're second year, so they, in other words, they only worked in the summer in 2018, yeah. they might have a very low taxable income. They're probably the lowest income they're going to have for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And so there are just a lot of potential things that they could be doing. Like a Roth and things like exactly. that? Exactly. Okay. So like doing a Roth conversion is one of the big ones. So most of them had 401ks coming in. So rolling those over to a rollover IRA and then doing a Roth conversion, mm-hmm. that becomes a taxable event. But for them, because they're at such, their, their incomes are so low, the tax rate is very, very low. Yeah. So you know, for if you're under 38700 the tax rate is only 12%. And if their folks are married, it's seventy-seven thousand. It goes up to seventy-seven thousand for that twelve percent tax rate. And the other thing along the same. Did theme, you meet any MBA students today who are married? Yes. Okay, that's yes. good. We yeah. see that in the executive MBA program, yeah, yeah. but less in the in the full time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And and the other thing that's along the same vein is is to realize unrealized gains. Because, again, mm. at those same income thresholds, it's actually a 0% capital gains tax. Right. That's the thing that a lot of folks don't even – it's not really on their radar is if they've been sitting on any unrealized gains in their taxable brokerage accounts, yeah. this is the window to realize them. Yeah, and explain that. It's a potentially – you know, you sell the assets and explain how you realize the gains. So say, for example, somebody bought a stock for $10,000 two, three years ago, and now that stock is worth $18,000. They could sell it this year, and it would have an $8,000 long-term capital gain. Now, under normal circumstances, if it's somebody who might be making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, they would have a 15% federal capital gains tax plus maybe something for their state. But this year, especially for for the, uh, the current students, if their income is really low and you know, say it's going to be twenty, thirty, twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars. Mm. They could get that eight percent. That eight thousand dollars is just added to their income, and it's still thirty-three thousand. If it was, if they were making twenty-five before, and then that's a zero percent capital gains tax. So they're realizing the gains, but it's at zero percent taxes, right? Which is really nice for them. And now, sometimes people can think about, well, I'll just sell the stock, realize the gains, and then rebuy the stock. There's you have to be a little careful to yes. explain the wash sale and all that. Yeah. So for gains, it's actually not as big a deal for yeah. the wash sale because yeah. the gains are okay. The gains part, yeah. Yeah. It's when people do something similar for the tax loss harvesting. Yeah. So you'll hear that a lot where people say, oh, well, I've, I've got a loss on this other investment. I'm going to sell it, lock in a loss, and use that to offset some other gains, which is good, mm-hmm. except they can't turn around and buy that same stock the next day. They've got yeah. to wait at least 30 days or buy something similar but not identical. Yeah. 
And so, yeah, we see that a lot with like even on the mutual fund side, you got to be careful with that for the uh, similar but not identical yeah, product. Yeah, the, the, this it's a, one of three different ways where I know the IRS uses the word substantial in terms of substantially similar and uh, refuses to define what the term means, <laughs> yep. yeah. um, that as well as some options and some other uh, taxable events. It's uh, They want to keep their their options open because, as, as you know, a lot of funds that will use tax loss harvesting and unclear, you know, how yeah. substantially similar these different ETFs are and so forth. So, again, speaking with Patrick Cote, he's the founding partner of Asset Grid in Boston, Massachusetts, and I uh, love to answer a question live on Tuesday. So give me a call here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the Henrys and some of the mistakes that you see. What are some of the big mistakes that you see? I would say one of the most common is is not thinking about asset location. Yeah. And so, so just uh, for by way of definition, many of your listeners are probably familiar with asset allocation. So, yeah. you know, they'll have heard of a 60-40 for stocks versus bonds, for example. So that's asset allocation as the percentages. Asset location is being thoughtful about where the assets are held. So something that's tax inefficient, like a REIT, a real estate investment trust, terrific asset class, but unfortunately very tax inefficient. So it's it, you really get hit with taxes on it if you have it in a taxable account. Mm. That would ideally be held in a tax-favored account, yeah. so an IRA of some type. Now, that's – so – and if you kind of look at that overall for your portfolio, you'd want to put the tax-efficient investments, so something like an S&P 500 index fund, very tax-efficient. You could leave that in your brokerage account, your taxable brokerage account. You wouldn't really need to worry about much of a tax impact there. If, and you keep the tax-efficient investments in the brokerage account and the tax-inefficient investments in the, in the IRAs or the, um, the tax-favorite accounts. So that's one of the most common things that people should be doing, but they're not. Yeah. The other thing, too, is just keeping a good balance of being thoughtful about the amount of cash or near cash, like we just heard that, that prior caller, really being thoughtful about how much to keep in cash because there's really an optimal level, mm. anywhere from 3 to 12 months' worth of expenses that are kept in cash. Any less than that can be very stressful. You know, if bad things happen and people need to raise cash, it can be tra- challenging to do so. Any more than that, so say more than 12 months, even if they really don't need it, that, that comes at a cost because they're not getting much of a return on it So versus other investments they could be making. So it's, that would, I would say that's one of the other big things that, uh, that, that, that we often need to correct when, when folks come in. Yeah, and certainly there's also just basic savings habits. I mean, um, with younger people, do, do you maybe a new student, uh, a graduate, and he or she has some, a fair amount of debt, but at the same time they have maybe access to a 401k or 403b, maybe some match. Yep. Um, and at the same time, you know, if they're doing asset location, they should be, you know, having a taxable account in order to put the stuff that doesn't generate as much income, um, like capital gains, in that in, in that taxable account. How, what's your recommendation of how people balance those? So yeah, so you want to you want to be thoughtful about the sequence. Yeah. So that was one of the big questions we had today as well uh, for a lot of the folks because student loans are obviously a big deal for for yeah. students nowadays, and so. Being, being going through the trade-offs, so usually the very first thing people want to do is make sure they get their money in the 401k 
up until the employer match because yeah. that's free money. You know, it's very common nowadays, especially because the employment situation is so good. Employers are really generous yeah. nowadays. They're giving 50% match typically up to, you know, 6% or more of the 401k contributions that people do. That's money that, you know, it would be crazy to, to not take that because that's right. a 50% return right off the bat. Right. Uh, then the next the next sequence is going down and saying, well, okay, are there any really bad debts? You know, are they expensive? You know, certainly credit card debts is one of those things. Anything that's, frankly, we try to say anything over 5% now for, for, for loans, those should be targeted mm-hmm. and go in order. So, you know, if obviously if they have credit card loans, and we do sometimes get Henry's coming in with, a lot in 401ks mm-hmm. or tax-deferred accounts, other tax-deferred accounts, but not much in their taxable. Yeah. And sometimes they, because of that, they run into shortfalls. They didn't have those emergency funds, and now they have credit card balances. So we target those. Yeah. So that's the next thing to, to target after yeah, that. Excellent. And again, speaking of Patrick Cote, founder and partner of Assey Green, Boston, Massachusetts, live on Tuesday. Love to answer a question here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Let me go to Liz calling from Maryland. How can I help you, Liz? Hi there. Um, I've heard you talk a lot about, um, you know, the Vanguard total stock market funds yeah. that you recommend and the bond funds. Um, I have a 401k that's invested in um, a Vanguard uh, target retirement fund. Yep. And I'm actually um, planning to roll it over now because I've left the employer into a, a Vanguard general, just a Vanguard account that I have. And I'm wondering whether to sort of keep it in the target retirement fund or put it into the, combine it with the total stock market fund. And I, I just am curious what your take is on um, on the target retirement funds. Yeah. Um, and as a related question, one thing that was sort of annoying <laughs> when I asked the Vanguard and, and the uh, my current 401k administrator, in order to, even though I'm keeping it, it would keep it as, as a Vanguard um, fund, I, I would be required, they're saying I would be required to liquidate it. So I'd kind of have to take the Assuming I did roll it over, I'd still have to kind of take, I guess, the market risk between the time they liquidate it and then it gets reinvested with Vanguard. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. It, 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 Vanguard is a monolith. I mean, it's a <laughs> massive company, and I can assure you the guys running their 401k are not this, it's even talking. They're probably not in the same part of campus as the guys running uh, the IRAs, and so I I can see that they they want you know a simple sequence for rollovers that regardless of where it's uh, coming from. So. Uh, Patrick, uh, we might uh, keep the call throughout the the quick break here, uh, coming up, uh, break in about a minute and a half here. Your, your thoughts about target date funds? Obviously, um, I forgot to ask you, Liz. Are, are you comfortable keeping track of things and doing asset, you know, balancing over time? And in the sense of, you know, if you went with a total stock market fund, total bond fund, you'd have to kind of, you know, manage that division between the stock market fund and the bond fund. Um, whereas the target date fund kind of does that more automatically for you over time. It, it, it's, but is that something you're, you, you'd you be good at kind of keeping up with it? I, I tend to be more of a passive investor. Like I would say that I would, but the yeah. reality is I probably am not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so you, yeah that, that's 
like many people, including myself, yeah, very strong intentions, ex ante, and lots of things in life, um, losing weight and so forth. But ex post, you know, the cookie looks good. Um, so, Patrick, hold on, Liz, after the break, we'll come back to you. But your quick thoughts, Patrick, about target date funds. Do you find them useful? I, I do find them useful in certain situations. So, yeah. you know, if it's, if it's a relatively simple setup, especially if most of your assets are on one account, what they're automatically doing with that is getting you that asset allocation that's probably right for your age because they usually just target it to whatever whatever date you're going to be hitting age 65. And then it makes it very easy uh, for you because then at that point you don't have to, you know, to Kent's point, you don't have to stay on top of it and do your adjustments year to year. They're just going to handle that for you. So that certainly makes that a lot easier. Um, it, where they can run into challenges is if you have other accounts, and then it gets a little bit messy. There. Okay, let's come back to that point because I think it's it's an important point. We're going to take a quick break, and Liz, stay on the line. We'll come right back to you. I'd uh, love to answer your questions here uh, about your own money. Give us a call here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. More with Pat Cote, and your calls right after this. You're listening to Your Money on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Kent Smetters. Uh, welcome back. You're listening to Your Money, Kent Smetters, Business Radio here in Sirius XM 111. We're going in the second hour. And just a reminder, live every Tuesday is at 5 p.m. Eastern. So if you want to know if you can afford something in particular, or you just have a question about your investments, just wondering if you saved enough for your kids' college, just give me a call. I'd love to answer your question here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Here with me in this segment is Patrick Cote, who's the founder and partner of Asset Grade. Doing a great job answering your questions again live on Tuesday. So love to answer a question here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And we left Liz on the line, and uh, in particular, Patrick, you were uh, saying there. There are kind of valid and invalid maybe uses. Invalid may be a strong word, but appropriate and not appropriate uses of kind of the target date uh, funds. For someone who doesn't want to manage the accounts very closely and so forth, they could be um, certainly with the automatic rebalancing and so forth, they could be more appropriate. But uh, explain what, what could be some potential problems. Well, where we typically see the issues is if you have more than one account. Yeah. So, Liz, if you have, you mentioned you've got the Vanguard Total Stock Market in, uh, Index uh, holdings in another account. Yeah. Uh, yes. So it sounds like, yeah, yeah that's right. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so the scenario is she's going to roll this over to an IRA. Uh, presumably, she's going to have another 401k at a new firm. So she yeah. would be a multiple account person. And in that scenario, one of the challenges is that the target date does it. The, most of them will do a good job of getting you at that right asset allocation, so that right mix of stocks and bonds for your age. Mm-hmm. And most of them will use a, a rule of thumb, something like 110 minus your age in equities. So if you're yeah. 40 years old, 110 minus 40 would be 70 percent in stocks and, and equities. And they'll usually do something along those lines. However, the challenge is if you have other holdings, all of a sudden your balance might be your your, your allocations might be out of whack. If you have those other holdings, that, that's why I was asking about that other Vanguard holding. If you have that, and say that's a big percentage of your holdings, you could end up having a lot more risk in your portfolio. You might end up being you know, 80 or 90% in yeah. stocks when you didn't really want to be there. 
So that's the danger if you start mixing and matching with target data in some accounts but not in others. And, and we've even seen if she even does target date with the same retirement date in all of her accounts. In theory, that you'd think that would kind of line up, but in practice, some of these target dates are very different in terms of what they're actually holding. They are. And then the other thing, the challenge with that is if some of the accounts are taxable accounts, yeah. all of a sudden then you're running into that tax issue we talked about yeah. earlier, the asset location. They'll have bonds in your taxable accounts and everything's kind of blown up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that's one of the biggest serious limitations is we well, we saw from 2008, a lot of the different target date funds uh, actually varied a lot in terms of the actual risk taking for the same retirement uh, target year. Um, but on top of that, if you do have this multiple accounts, including one is a taxable account, then that's where things get really more complicated because you should actually have much more of the things like the Vanguard Total Stock Market Fund or some some large stock market um, index uh, fund in your taxable account that kicks off very little kind of capital gains along the way and certainly uh, almost uh, very little income um, and then have more of your bonds in your uh, retirement account. And that's where the target date fund is not going to be very useful because you really want to have them um, uh, one count much more in stocks, the other count much more in bonds so that your entire portfolio hits the mix and maybe that 60-40 mix that you're trying to uh, get to. So thanks so much for calling her, Liz. I hope that was really helpful. And again, speaking of Patrick Cote, founder uh, and uh, partner, uh, uh, asset grade in Boston, Massachusetts, give us a call here. I'd love to answer your question here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And let me go to Stephen calling from California. How can you help you, Stephen? Hey, yes, sir. Um, I pretty much had a question, uh, two parts. So part one is kind of a discussion of benefits for me as an employee. So currently, um, I'm a government contractor, and we're, we're going through a restructuring of how our pay brackets would be set up in order to uh, better marry up with some of the job responsibilities. Okay, like so that. Steve, since the connection's not very good, just summarize exactly. Um, don't, okay. don't You don't have to give me all the background. Just give me kind of a summarizing. Uh, let's go, get to the question. Basically, I would like to know, part one, is whether or not a, a salary increase of 30000 would be more beneficial to me as an employee versus a bonus of 30000 And... Because that's what they're, we're currently going to right now is that we would be giving, instead of a salary bump, you would get a bonus. And I'm trying to see if that, which one would be more beneficial to me as an employee. Okay. Okay. So that's your one question. What was, you said you had a second question? Uh, yes. So um, the second question was more so along the lines of the setting up a tax a better tax vehicle for my kids' college tuition down the road. I have two children. Okay. And okay, so we'll talk about that one as well. And you're calling from the state of California, so something like a 529 is not going to get the state tax benefit, but still with federal. Uh, how old are your kids, Stephen? Uh, six and ten. Six and ten. Okay. Uh, thanks, Stephen. So let's talk about the first one. Certainly... You know, a guaranteed thirty thousand versus <laughs> um, a bonus, which is presumably contingent on some type of performance metrics being hit, uh, and it's still thirty thousand. Uh, from a pure economics perspective, <laughs> uh, there's no question that there um, the bonus is uh, you know less 
uh, uh, valuable. But I think Stevens Quest is more on the tax angle. And this is sometimes where people get confused. They think there might be something different about a bonus. So explain that. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're getting paid and, and you're getting a 1099, you're on, on that, but uh, uh, like you, you're, you're basically being paid the, the same amount from that employer. There's not going to be a big difference other than, as Kent was saying, the fact that you're getting a guaranteed version versus a not a guaranteed version. So if, if it's an option, take the guaranteed version if you can. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, they're trying to incentivize, create some incentives, uh, Stephen. So it may not be in the end, you know, uh, much of a reduction, but, you know, certainly the guaranteed salary of 30000 has to be more valuable than a bonus of thirty thousand, that presumably is not you know um, uh, a guaranteed. But from a tax perspective, it's just going to show up in your tax forms, all in the same box. There's not going to be any uh, uh, real difference, uh, given that we're just talking about cash here. What I would encourage you to think about is you know maybe going back to them and saying, hey, uh, I'll take the thirty thousand dollar tax uh, you know salary cut if you're willing to give me a bonus of maybe. Forty thousand or fifty thousand, and you know, create a little bit more upside and define really clear what those metrics then are. You know, uh, put them down on paper and say, you know, if we hit these out of the park metrics, you know, you know, could I get sixty thousand? I think it's it, I've ever, you know, I've been an employer multiple times, multiple groups, and um, I've never been bothered by an employee who uh, wants a bigger bonus. The salary thing sometimes rubs you the wrong way because mm. it's kind of like, hey, I want it regardless of performance. The bonus thing, though, if if it's well-defined metrics and as, uh, you know we're doing well, then sure, I'm happy to pay uh, a bigger bonus. So this is maybe your time to, if you have negotiating power in this, to, to, to you know talk about uh, maybe there's some minimum level that's required for the $30,000 because it's replacing a guaranteed 30000 and then, you know, figure out, can you uh, create additional hurdles and triggers for maybe forty, fifty thousand, 50000 and so forth? Um, so, Patrick, the uh, second question of uh, Stephen is about uh, the uh, saving for uh, college. And usually the default, especially nowadays, is the 529. Do you have other reasons? Uh, sometimes people like to potentially use a Roth and things like like that. I mean, I understand sometimes the arguments uh, behind that. Is the, the 529 kind of your default where you go to? It, it really is. And, you know, in this case, uh, Stephen, if you don't have any other savings for them, it probably is going to be the, the best one for you. Yeah. And especially if, if it's uh, for, for college down the road, you've got a number of years to go with it. Typically, they will be putting, when you actually look at, like, under the hood and what they're actually investing in those 529s, yeah. they will put your the investments in, in target dates, like what we were just talking about with the other caller. And those target dates are designed to kind of be optimized for when your kids are going to college. So yeah. they make it really like none of a no-brainer for you, for folks along the way. Yeah, and you, you're not going to – given that you're calling from California, you're, uh, California does not give a state – um, tax deduction for countries to a 529, but you still get the federal where it's like a Roth. You put the money in after tax and the money grows tax-free. Um, and if it's withdrawn for for college, then in fact, um, um, you don't pay taxes in that case. And then the definition of education expenses, very broad. And in fact, even nowadays, it doesn't even have to be college. I mean, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act actually relaxed it a little bit for like private high schools and so forth. But it's very broad 
definition for what qualifies as education. Uh, and so he, uh, Patrick, he's calling from California. There's no particular reason he has to use the California 529. This is mm. an important point that a lot of people don't understand is that in some states you want to use your state's 529 to get the state tax deduction unless they have a reciprocity agreement with another state. Um, but in California, it's really no reason. He can still get the federal benefit by using another state's 529 plan. A lot of people sometimes like the Utah plan in this case. Your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that's that's a that's a, a great question. And and if there isn't a tax deduction, there is no real benefit there. So yes, yeah, so Utah, the Vanguard ones, they're they're good ones. Uh, as, you know, so that's I think I think that's a nice way to go. Do you, do you, is that is that the state that is kind of your go to state when they're in California? Do you have a go to state or not so much? Not not so much. I think it's going to depend on on each situation. The other thing that's actually a bit of a consideration now too is. Uh, you mentioned that people can use the 529s for private K through 12 yeah. uh, tuition uh, as well. Now, one challenge there That's is, right. You come from Boston. Where, yes. <laughs> and and right. so with Massachusetts, you do get a small tax benefit. And yeah. you know, it's now $1,000 for the, for yeah. the 529. But you also, like, then there's questions about the state tax treatment of using those 529s for for um, for private high schools. So that's that gets a little bit messier. That may not apply for you. Explain for you, quickly. What, what does that mean? So... Uh, what happened was when the when the tax law changed the yeah. uh, at the federal level, they said yes, you can use the five twenty nine plans ah. to pay for private K through twelve up to ten thousand a year. Right. But they didn't they didn't force it at the state level. Sure. So states have not necessarily uh, come out uh, and confirmed that they will also count withdrawals as being okay for for private K through twelve. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that five twenty nine is actually just simply allows states to run plans. They're not obligated to run these plans. In fact, Wyoming, uh, I believe, is still. Uh, I haven't looked in the last year or two, but they traditionally do not have a five twenty nine. Uh, a plan. And so um, you have the 529 plans for college. You also have the 529 ABLE plans if you have a, 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 a potentially like a, a child with a disability. Some states have that, the ABLE plan. Some states do not, although more and more states now have that. So it's all administered really at the uh, at the state level. And, you, and that raises a really great point is that some states have been a little bit more proactive at issuing guidance about the tax uh, whether you get the tax benefit for things like K through twelve, a private schools, it's amazing the tax law how quickly it was done and how little syncing up there was with the state. So like lots of deemed repatriation at the, the, the all the money being held offshores uh, was deemed repatriated for federal purposes, but states haven't figured out what to do with this, and so it's been a, just a complete uh, mess. So thanks so much for calling, Steve, and uh, good luck with that. Again, speaking with Pat Cote, the founder and partner of Asset uh, Gray, do it at Boston, Massachusetts, doing a great job answering your question. Love to answer a que- uh, question here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And so, uh, Pat- Patrick, talking about you know uh, Henry's, which is you know these high earners, not yet rich, uh, which is a market day. Uh, you focus quite a bit uh, on. Um, so you found one reason why you created their firm is that you found there, there wasn't a lot of attention on these people because, you know, traditional advising is about the assets. It's not so much about the potential going um, uh, afford. But like, you know, you saw today your visit here to the Wharton School. I mean, you have 
a lot of uh, students who are going to be graduating getting good incomes, not uh, high assets right now. They might even be negative net worth with all <laughs> yep. the student debt and things like that. So, um, so why? Besides just kind of financial advice, I'm kind of curious why there hasn't been more people focused on Henry's, and you know, what, are Henry's kind of being underserved in other markets as well? I mean, what, what's you know, uh, what are you seeing out there? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think it's it it has to do with a lot with just the the industry in general has much more of a short term focus. Yeah, and so you know, I think you know a lot of uh, advisors will naturally target people who are just about to retire because that's the optimal that's the highest level of assets for most people yeah. in their lifetime. So that's when they've built up the most, and so a lot of the industry will focus on them. And in general, you know, the at the higher asset levels, there are great services that are available, you know, for the ultra high net worth, as it's called in the industry. Yeah. So certainly for $10 million plus, there are plenty of excellent service providers out there that can are help. They? <laughs> yeah. Are doesn't they mean, really? doesn't mean that everybody's <laughs> getting excellent service, but there are excellent ones there available. There's a few out there, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the challenge... But there's a lot of bad ones, even at the $10 million plus. Th- there right? is, yeah. Yeah, it yeah, doesn't mean people are getting the good service, yeah, but yeah. it's certainly available. The yeah. challenge tends to be as you go further and further down, you yeah. know, with the smaller asset level. So that was that was our our focus. Because one of the things that always struck us is that it's a shame when you have people who could be saving along the way, and just with some minor tweaks here and there, saving a little bit more, just investing it a little bit better. You know, over the years, it really makes a dramatic difference. Yeah. And so it's a shame when folks who could have done those things don't and then don't end up in a great Let's position. Let's talk about savings. I mean, it's a, it's a myth that millennials don't save for retirement and so forth, a bunch of spoiled brats and so <laughs> forth. It's actually not true. The data shows that they're actually overall, you know, um, you know saving pretty well uh, uh, for uh, retirement. But certainly there's a lot of heterogeneity there. A lot of people aren't, you know, always saving for the future. How do you get people to save for the future? I mean, you've just graduated school. You got this great job. You've never seen that type of money. Yep. You just want to go out and finally, you know, I finally came. You know, I finally, you know, um, this is this is my time to live. So what, what is it? How do you get them to kind of save more? Well, I would say the number one way now is is the fact that people have a lot of student loans when they yeah. graduate now. It's it's tough for them initially. That can actually be a blessing in disguise over time right. because what happens is if they get a, into an aggressive program, because for most of those folks, they do not like having those student loans hanging over their head. Yeah. They want to get rid of them. So if they're making good money, they they start putting away a lot and they start mm-hmm. prepaying those loans. Now, the good thing is say you know they're making uh, you know in the six figures and they're able to, to start saving 50 grand a year that they're putting aside to, to pay these loans – you know, and if they had graduated with you know, 150000 in the student loans and they were able to pay it back in a few years, they've gotten into a mode where they're used to saving 50000 per year. Right. So what I always tell them at that point is you're used to saving 50000 a year. Right. Don't start spending it. You don't have to buy a fancy new car every year and all these crazy things to start spending all your money. Yes, start living a little bit more. But at the same time, just keep saving a lot. And yeah. all of a sudden, that starts to really build up. So they, they've been able to translate that savings to prepay the loans into savings for retirement. Yeah, and it's definitely paying down debts is like saving for the future. Often, you know, at a risk-adjusted rate, a very good saving 
uh, for the future. But you're absolutely right. It's really about not making those adjustments in lifestyle mm-hmm. uh, when either you get a raise or you're getting you know, uh, um, out of debt. Um, so fant- fantastic uh, job. Uh, Patrick, fantastic. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. Really appreciate having you. Thanks for having me again. And you can find out more uh, about Patrick by going uh, to his website, which is, again, assetgrade.com. And uh, you're listening to Your Money, Kent Smothers Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here at Sirius XM 132. When you come back, more of your calls, answering your questions about how to save, invest, pay down debts, and otherwise managing your money. When you come back, we'll welcome um, back to the show uh, Ara Agorian, um, who has been on the show probably a good seven, eight times himself and taking your calls here live on Tuesday. So grab the phone, give me a call here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. We'll be back right after this quick break. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 